You're listening to Real Talk for Real Men, episode number 13. Welcome to the Real Talk for Real Men podcast. Lifestyle advice for men so powerful, you'll want to run your life on it. And now your hosts, Guy Mullen and Chris Field. Hello everyone and welcome back to Real Talk for Real Men. I'm Guy Mullen and I'm back with Chris Field, but we're not in our usual place are we, Chris? We're travelling down the highway. We're travelling down the highway. So normally when we're in my studio, sometimes we'll have some kids in the background or we'll have maybe an oink-oink from a pig or a moo-moo for a cow, but we've got engine noise. So apologise for that, for everyone listening. We'll try and remove some of it in the post-processing, but you might just need to uh, have a good set of headphones and, and turn the volume up a little bit to be able to hear us. So, if you hear any screaming along the way, it's only because guys turned in the front of somebody or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Hopefully, I'll be able to maintain my concentration. So you're going to have to do most of the talking, Chris. Okay, so sometimes I joke around with you that, uh, you know, a life as long as yours and, you know... And <laughs> you make me sound old. <laughs> I try and make you sound old. and it's, But, uh, you know, you do have 10 or 15 years on me. And, you know, and everyone has a story to tell. And you've been through some some things which are a little bit, little bit unusual. I wanted to take us back to one of those... Take you back to one of those events where... You uh, you ended up taking on the big guys, and can you tell us the backstory as to how that came okay. about? Okay. Well, let's firstly maybe to give a bit of a headline for the the listeners who won't know this. I've been evicted from the same house twice uh, because of a legal battle that I was trying to fight, and which I lost on two separate occasions. And it's a fight that uh, my wife and I believe we probably will still, in due course. Uh, and it's a bizarre thing. It had me on national television here in Australia. Uh, people think that I'm mad. Other people um, just think that uh, I'm a bit of a hard luck story or something or other. But there is quite a backstory to those events, uh, what led to me taking such a, an unusual posture and putting myself into what was turned out to be, to all intents and purposes, a pretty sad outcome. Uh, I'm sure nobody else would like to go through the sort of things that we went through. But the story really started very innocently, and it started with a couple of conversations with people that I I had a couple of decades ago, uh, relevant to the law. And people were referring to this thing called the common law, and uh, uh, countries with an English heritage have access to what we would refer to as the ancient common law. There's a modern definition of common law that simply means uh, precedent within the current court system, but there is an ancient common law which was established and William Blackstone uh, declared many, many years ago that the common law was really the Bible being fleshed out into practical uh, instructions for the, the adjudicating issues and so on. So common law in its best form is in fact a reflection of a biblical mandate translated into social, social uh, order. And so uh, people told me, for instance, that they were uh, preparing to uh, marry couples under common law and have a common law marriage. I said, what's a common law marriage? You know, what, well, what would that be different to, to an ordinary marriage? And they began to discuss the fact that, that uh, increasingly our government systems are such that uh, they are acting as if they are the final authority and that God is not the final authority in our lives. And that uh, social standards are changing based on government policy and that people felt that they would like to establish things 
in a more biblical way and a common law marriage was in their mind. So I thought to myself, one day I'm going to have to do a bit of homework on this thing called the common law. Subsequent to that, I came across a number of other people who told me about things like common law trusts. Mm-hmm. Uh, friends in New Zealand were uh, using a thing they called a common law trust. And I was very intrigued to, to find out a bit more about that. It turned out that it became a, a major enterprise in New Zealand, and the, the New Zealand tax office stomped on it pretty hard and passed some laws to try and stop people using these mechanisms. I still didn't really understand what they were, but I put it in as a footnote to myself. One day I better find out what that's all about. Mm-hmm. Then I came across people that were running common law seminars. that thought, oh, I better go along and find out what they're talking about. And they tended to be in the um, the category of the general category of the conspiracy theorist people who, uh, or, or the civil libertarians who believe that the the uh, system is oppressive and that uh, we need to revert to more ancient uh, legal foundations. It was pointed out to me that, in fact, the Australian Constitution, which is our primary legal document for our existence, is in fact established on common law. So Australia can't actually ever really do away with the ancient common law, or it basically pulls the sand out from underneath our own Constitution. So I thought, oh, well, that sounds pretty good. It sounds like something to get to know. So I began... Uh, visiting websites and trying to find out more about what was really going on. And unfortunately, that turf is really muddy from millions of people with millions of opinions. And yeah, you can't make sense. Oh, they do. And they get, people get sidetracked on the most bizarre yep. issues. Somebody told me, do you know, I can tell you the address of all of the people that are the members of such and such a group. I said, well, who cares? Like, excuse me? I couldn't understand why that was fascinating to somebody. I'd rather know how to protect myself and my children and my grandchildren and churches and ministries from oppression by the system than to know someone's address. It just seemed absurd. So I, I spent a lot of time uh, spitting out the, the the rubbish that seemed to be cluttering up that whole landscape, but keen to try and find out what was really behind uh, all of these things. I began to recognize, too, that a number of the rather simple processes that we employ in our society here in Australia, and I think it's consistent in most Western countries, like, for instance, our traffic fines, are uh, processed in a way that's not actually consistent with our lawful rights. There are certain uh, assumptions that we have, and things like we would assume that we are innocent until proven guilty, but it seems when it comes down to traffic fines, as soon as you get the fine, you are already deemed to be proven guilty. And so one of the most foundational principles of our uh, legal rights and freedoms that we are innocent until proven guilty is actually violated just about every time someone ever receives uh, some kind of traffic infringement, a parking fine, and those sorts of things. And so that rather disturbed me, and I thought I'd like to know a little bit more about it. And as I explored that, I, I began to recognize, too, that there were processes within our banking system uh, that related to the way money was created and how money was uh, uh, made available to people in loans and so on that was not consistent with reality. Uh, and now there's a plethora of material available on the web about that and people that are making significant gains in significant legal cases to establish and prove that. So I... I, I so- so what was what was your objective with getting into this? Was was this just some sort of uh, sort of intellectual curiosity, or did you were you were you looking for some sort of opportunity? No, I think the first thing was the fact that I felt prompted 
to understand what our foundational law was, what was this common law. So that was the first thing. And it just Why? cropped up over about three years. I just felt that, that, that it was there in front of me, and I thought maybe God's just prompting me to, to look into this. As I did, I then became aware of inequities, uh, disparities in the way things were being processed, and I felt that that was... Um, it, well, let me put it this way. I think it was a bit of a shock. Growing up in Australia, we are told, it's kind of the mantra, that we are incredibly fortunate to be in a, a stable uh, Western democracy with the uh, history of the Westminster system of government behind us and with centuries of, of, of law as yep. our foundation. Yeah, itself and being well-regulated. All of that. And of course, sort of stuff. then you suddenly discover that in reality that's not true. It's a story that we are told... Uh, but the actual process, such as I was saying with the, with the fines, is in fact contrary to our, our legal rights. So, so you felt like you were discovering the matrix. Well, maybe that did, yeah, <laughs> it was amazing to kind of peep behind the curtain and think, what in the world is this? Then I began to recognise that if this was what was happening, uh, it was going to continue to happen. I have seven children. Right now I've got 23 grandchildren. I'm going to leave a heritage to my children and my grandchildren. And one of the thoughts that bothered me was to imagine one of my grandchildren or great-grandchildren coming to me at some time many years in the future and saying, great-granddad, why didn't you do something about this? You saw it happening. You saw us having our rights and freedoms taken from us. Well, what did you do? And have, Oh, well, I was at the footy. Um, I was watching television. I was very, very busy with a whole bunch of seminars at church. I mean, what am I going to say to them when they are living in a very oppressive context because the abuses of the system have simply continued to go in that direction. And so that was the assumption that you made, that that these abuses were sort of in the background, hiding under the system, and that at some point they would come out to the surface and, and intensify and impact your children. Is that sort of well, the... I think they already are impacting all of us in a number of ways. And I think that that was where I realised that my own children and grandchildren were already being... Um, negatively affected certain rights and freedoms were being kept from them uh, and that if if that wasn't someone didn't stand up for them uh, there was no reason to believe anyone was going to turn around and so so what so what sort of freedoms did you at that time did you see being withheld from well, your, I guess I saw that kids. the um, the overregulation of our lives probably was something that I felt was was interesting uh, when I was a boy growing up uh, in my little town, you know, you could walk across the, the road uh, any old way you wanted to, as long as you were safe. You could come to an intersection and turn the, that intersection uh, with care and with safety. Uh, but now uh, you could end up with a, a significant fine for having stepped on the road in the wrong place or having um, driven safely but um, not in a court. Turn left to, on a red light, for example, like you used to be able to do. Yep. Uh, and so... The sense of being regulated, my dad was never regulated like that. I was never regulated like that when I was young. But now it seems that just very ordinary things are a matter of uh, of, of fines and regulation and that uh, there was no evidence that it was actually going to ever go backwards. It was only going to become more increasingly. The speed limits always come down. They never go up type of thing. Well, yes, or the fines for breaking the law will go up yep. uh, and so on. And... Uh, I guess what really bothered me, and this I did hear this out of the States, of course, from someone that was talking about how that the model uh, traffic rules that were being um, applied were, were recognised to be, in fact, against the American Constitution. But the regulators, the, the, the people in political power, were still 
applying these rules because there was a lot of money in it. it, 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 it some commercial um, process had, had taken precedence over the, the proper management and governance of the people by the people for the people. Yep. It was now by the corporation for the benefit of the shareholders or something. I, I couldn't quite understand it, but that pushed me in that direction. The big problem for me was that I could see uh, from my reading and, and researching around the place, and look, I'm not a, a, an incredibly intelligent individual, but I read enough material and put enough things together to realize that the the banking system as we know it uh, is a, a, a controlled and contrived process uh, that is clearly for the benefit of those people who are at the head of the system, and that the people like myself who might have needed to go and borrow money uh, and deal with the banks was always at a disadvantage and at a loss, and that they were built into the processes uh, a number of things that that really, you know, I'm just te teasing with myself as to how much detail I want to try and dive into while we're driving up the highway, but um, I, I discovered, for instance, and people might think this is ridiculous, do your own Google searching on it and you'll find plenty of information, um, that the money that we borrow from the bank uh, is never taken out of the bank's vault. They don't go and open a safe and bring. No, it to the we've bank. got a fiat system. It's a fiat system. So yep. they, they, fiat meaning it's it's a it's a fiction. It's a it's, yep. uh, it's a cartoon image. They just create. Yeah, so that the money supply can increase faster than the the um, the value of the economy. But what's tricky then is that if the bank had taken its own value, if I gave you a hundred dollars out of my wallet, uh, I'd, I'd say, guy, I'm loaning you that money. And you're beholden to me because I've actually given you something of substance. Yep. If I simply wrote a number on a piece of paper and said, now you've got to pay me interest on that, that doesn't have the same quality, it's not the, the same character. And so when a bank enters into a loan arrangement and they write a number on a piece of paper, yes, they've given you a facility, they've given you a capacity to operate in the economic system that you didn't have before. So something was transferred to you, but the actual money wasn't loaned to you. And yet, in all of the court cases, and in any time someone is being arraigned before the court because they haven't paid back the loan or whatever, it's always done on the premise, and the judges act as if this is in fact the established fact, that money was loaned. And so there was something inequitable about that, that um, perception that was ubiquitously uh, received throughout the system. And I, I thought to myself, one day I'm going to have to dig into that. One day I'll look at that. But right now, if I'm going to do anything at all, I'll, I'll tackle some traffic fine. You know, if I'm going to actually uh, bench test this, if I'm going to, to do a lab test on, on whether this stuff is real or not, I'll try something really innocent and safe worth about 100 bucks. But at the time, I had a substantial line of credit on my personal home. Home was worth over a million dollars, a nice two-story home that God had blessed us with. And I had established, after owning the home freehold, I'd established a line of credit so that uh, we could put on a garage and we could do a few other things. And uh, we had uh, operated in that way, but at the same time, I was actively involved in ministry and, and I wasn't earning any income. And in due process of time, we were actually eating into our line of credit and using that for our week-to-week -week living and also using that to pay back the loan, uh, which was very unfortunate. And, situation to be in and one that I certainly wouldn't recommend that people get in. But as that uh, process happened and we anticipated God's blessing and, and provision in certain ways and those provisions and blessings evaporated, we found ourselves looking at a situation where we were going to be 
uh, very uh, significantly compromised financially. And I, I talked to my wife and I talked to my family that were with me in the home at the time. Some of my family were married and had left the home. And I said, what do we do? What's the appropriate way to, to, to face this and to handle this? And we came to a unanimous agreement that what we would do is um, pick up the information that we had about the things that were wrong within the banking system and try and tackle this thing and get some clarity and some justice in the way we were going to be processed as a result of being under financial difficulty. Uh, that led me to write a number of letters to our lenders uh, and to explain to them the situation and to ask them if what we understood to be the case was the case, if they could clarify that, would they give us information? Uh, so when we got through that, I, I wrote to them and said, would you please provide information? They just simply, I presume, took the letters and threw them in the bin. We got no uh, credible, and we got no answer at all, so no information at all. And so I wrote further letters saying, look, on the basis of your silence, I assume that you are accepting these premises and these propositions. And, and I tried my way to force them to um, speak to me, to, to uh, come into some dialogue. Uh, what they did, of course, was simply say, ah, Mr. Field, um, you're behind on your payments. And uh, despite any other correspondence that you've sent, uh, you are now in default of the, the loan contract that you established. At the same time as all this was happening, we had access to a number of academics, and I won't mention names in particular, but there was one particular academic in Australia who had personally researched the backroom processes that were taking place specifically with the lender that we were with. And they said that the processes were flawed and so much so that people might end up actually suing that particular bank because of their processes and their failure to disclose to the customer the risks that they were putting the customer under by misrepresenting the facts. So we had uh, some substantial um, academically sound information on our side as we put questions to this lender and asked them to confirm whether the certain claims were true or not. And I said, look, I'm going to withhold payments until such time as you can assure me that you are the right person for me to be paying. And for those that might know what I'm talking about here, we're picking up uh, on the, the process here of securitization and how that a bank doesn't even hold the loan, usually within a, a month or so of having given a loan to a customer, they sell that loan to somebody yep. else. But they don't disclose that process to the customer, nor do they disclose it to other interested parties in Australia, for instance, like the titles office. So they hold a mortgage on a title over a property, but they've sold that mortgage to someone else. Yep. They should have, in fact, told the titles office, we have sold this property. Well, have they sold it off or have they sold a a derivative of it. They have sold a derivative. And of course, if you understand the derivation process, to create a derivative, you actually destroy the underlying instrument. So that means the loan and the mortgage actually no longer physically existed in order for it to be securitized. So it's quite complex in terms of backroom dealings and the implications of all of that. Uh, and of course, the banks and uh, sorry, the courts don't want to go anywhere near. And of course, a lot of this, I guess, has come out post-GFC. Yes. When you... You know, when you when you look into that, you see that uh, you know the banks were were looking envious at um, the hedge funds and so on that were making uh, greater returns, and hence they had all these mortgages which they could only make a small interest rate on. So they found a way of packaging up the the good mortgages with the bad ones, 
uh, and disguising in some, some respect the, the rating of those and then and selling them off and getting a greater return. And of course, then the, the poisonous mortgages within those packages, one apple tainted the whole basket, if you like, and the whole house of cards came toppling down. So, so you've been doing this research and you started to uncover some things which didn't look right and you felt that having this information, information with information comes responsibility and you felt you should do something about it. At the same time, you, you had a mortgage on a substantial home and didn't have any meaningful employment to be able to service that loan and you were, were wondering, well, what is, the, what is the legality of this loan in the first place? Yes, and I guess behind it all was too is what, what did we feel God was telling us to do? We could have all we could have just simply filed under hardship provisions. We, you know, we could a number of different things we could have done that that ordinary people would do. But because of the way I'd felt that God was uh, leading my understanding, my my uh, insight into the process, I felt that God was calling me to challenge the system. I, as I said to you, it was the last thing I wanted to do. I'd much rather be challenging the system on something worth a hundred bucks than on the value of my whole home. So uh, there was a real reluctance to do it, but a sense of inevitability that this was, in fact, what God wanted us to do. So, so the elephant question in the room, and I have to ask this question, is was, was this just a way of not having to pay what you owed on the house? No. It wasn't? Um, I, I wasn't consciously aware that that was the case. I guess, to be fair, um, if, if I fought this fight and won, as I would have done lawfully, then any benefit that I received, I would have received lawfully anyway. I would have, if I, if I had been released from my mortgage, it would have only been because I was lawfully entitled to be released from my mortgage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't looking for anything that wasn't mine. If I was going to fight this fight uh, and I was to win, and that was to mean that I was to have receive a financial benefit out of that, then it was only because that final financial benefit was already mine before I even went into the fight and I yep. just was claiming it. Uh, if I was to lose because the financial benefit didn't belong to me, well, then I was just a fool for having gone into the fight in the first place. So there was a sense of facing up to the fact that God was prompting this uh, uh, process and a sense, too, that if this inequ- in- inequity, I was really said iniquity, if this inequity was in the system, both within our um, regulatory system for safer traffic offences and fines, and in our banking system, then in a a noble society, people would stand up against it in some way. And the question that came to me was, not from outside, but in my own thinking, who would be the more appropriate person to stand up and tackle this? Often issues of inequity are are tackled and have been down through the the history by people that were um, not ministers of religion, they were not great God-fearing men, although there were many of those who did stand up for what was right, but often the issues that that needed to be dealt with were were dealt with simply by an ordinary member of the public with no particular faith who simply felt that they had to stand up and and challenge an issue. But my thinking was, goodness, if this is as deeply entrenched as it appears to be, if the problem is as serious as it seems to be, it's as ubiquitous as it seems to be. Uh, then whoever stands up against this has to be someone with more resources than just their own nerve. It needs to be someone who can call upon God's grace, God's wisdom, God's protection, something of a greater level than the average person would have available to them. And so I determined that God was wanting me to be one of those people, and there are many others, 
who would stand up on this issue and try and do something about it. So with all of that background, uh, we found ourselves receiving letters from a lawyer telling us that we were in default and that we were going to go to court. And so that uh, was going to be the Supreme Court uh, in Melbourne, uh, and so which is the, the Supreme Court of Victoria. And uh, so I wrote to the court and I explained to them the, the letters I'd written and the claims that I'd made and, and what, to my surprise, and I think this was probably the bigger kicker of it all, the court took no interest in that at all. There was zero interest in my lawful rights that seemed to be reflected back to me from the Supreme Court of Victoria. And, and mm. it's a court of record. This is our highest uh, court, uh, other than going to the Court of Appeal, above the Supreme Court or then going into the... So how did this get to the Supreme Court? Surely it would be dealt with in a lower court. No, court. it was just processed in the Supreme Court. That's uh, And so I had to turn up uh, in a particular court at a particular time. And uh, I, I was... At, just completely at a loss. I, I, I had no background in law. I had no background in legal process. I had no idea. I was you're uh, a lamb for the slaughter. I was absolutely, and I didn't have uh, a legal representative. I wasn't going to throw thousands and thousands of dollars at some lawyer. I'd come to understand from uh, listening to other people that they had found that lawyers uh, can often be part of the problem. That sometimes no one will represent your own interests as well as you will. Yeah, they've got to worry about their, their interests. They're oh, not going to yes. take on cases they can't win. So uh, I found myself standing in court and. Um, excuse God's excuse the traffic noise. We're on the freeway now, so it's a bit noisier. So by God's grace, we uh, the whole process drew out and drew out, and I had a number of. Um, I, I discovered a lot of things, I, I sorted out a lot of things, I worked out what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to do it. Uh, but the the tide was a very much a, a, a David and Goliath kind of equation. The, the sheer steamroller of the bank and all of its processes. I was finding myself going to the titles office and arguing with them about how that the record by the bank was actually not accurate. And they said, well, well there's actually a law being passed by the Victorian government that whether the, the record in the title's office is correct or not, it is to be taken as fact. And I thought, like, you could see how that in the background, all of these pieces have been put in place carefully by people who wanted to win the game against the little man, so that even lawful arguments uh, could not be um, uh, could not be won. The, the, to make the story short, we lost that, but, it, but the case did draw on for uh, nine months or so. We finally... Um, had a, a, a warrant of, of eviction uh, to be evicted out of the home, so we then contacted the sheriff's office and addressed them with how unlawful it would be for them to act against us in view of all of the different things that we had done. I was trying to make sure that any party in the process was fully appraised of the process and our lawful and legal claims. Uh, we were eventually uh, evicted from the home, and, but by then, we'd also found out that there were um, differences in the process to what the public perception was, that once we had been removed from the home, we actually had the lawful right to re-enter the home. Most people wouldn't know that and didn't know that, but we did. And so one week later, we actually went back into our home that we'd been evicted from. The television stations came and filmed us in the home, and uh, we became national news of people who were uh, evicted from a home and, and able to go straight back in again. Uh, that was a fraught with a whole lot of difficulties, and I won't go into the detail of, of some horrible moments in that process. But we successfully got back to our home, 
we got contacted by the lawyer and the lawyer was very angry and said, we've now got to go back to court and get another warrant. And I wrote back to him and said, thank you for admitting what we already believe, that the warrant that you've exercised is now of no effect. Thank you for confirming that, uh, which is why we were able to go back into the house. And so all of this argy-bargy process continued uh, and we were in the home for about another six months before we were evicted the second time. We had already said on national television that if we were evicted again, we would re-enter the home. So on the second occasion, the sheriff's officers lined our property, big burly fellows, to make sure that I couldn't put my foot back on the property as soon as I was removed from it. And uh, within no time, there was a fence and a guard dog, a rather savage guard dog on the property, and a security guard. Uh, Once again, of course, only because they had to force us to stay away because there was no legal right. So, so So here's your home. So this is an ordinary suburban home? Yep. Uh, and so they've erected a fence. Yep. What sort of fence is this? Oh, is this well, like a, a, a bit ten foot high? Ten yeah. foot high barbed yeah. wire on the top. Uh, probably I didn't climb the top of it. To see. And um, and and secure twenty four seven security yes. guards yes. and uh, and, and our station and we had pets on the property. We were concerned about cats and we had the things we had to try and do and sort out. Um, I'm just mentioned. I just don't want the story to go on forever because there's an awful lot of detail. But I mentioned that. Once the bank had taken the property, they then uh, put it in the hands of a real estate agent who released a document for sale. In that document for sale, it has to reveal who the, the seller is. And in that, we saw information that confirmed that every claim we'd made up to that point was true, that the bank had actually on-sold the property and the rights to the property to a securitization um, trust. And that trust was exposed in the what we call a Section 32 document here that is part of the sale process. So I went back now into the Court of Appeal and I said, I now have proof that what I've been saying all the way along is true. And I brought that into the court and the the justice, what he called the judge in the the, uh, Supreme Court of Appeal, simply said, well, Mr. Field, I'm sure it all comes out in the wash. And that was his judicial opinion about our situation. Um, I was so, um, I can't say I was crushed, but I was so um, disturbed, shocked, to discover that this pristine judicial system that was only there to protect my rights was so determined to uh, ignore evidence, trample on my rights, ignore all of my lawful claims, uh, ignore due process, just do all of these things uh, over and over and over again. So. That uh, uh, led us to the point where we were homeless and by the, the grace of family and friends, uh, we remained uh, in that state now for about seven years. And we have continued to be in touch with people around the world, South Africa, making some significant gains in exposing these inequities. Uh, people in Western Australia, the uh, uh, BFCSA, if it's called, um, Denise Briley over there is, is uh, making great wins with banks and getting them to actually uh, uh, make very, very appropriate arrangements instead of inappropriate arrangements with lenders who uh, complain about what's been going on. And so the and in America, some significant court cases that have, where the judges have accepted claims exactly like the ones we tried to make in Australia. I went and before a, a high-powered lawyer in uh, Melbourne City, uh, someone uh, who had this lawyer uh, as a, a regular um, service provider paid for me to have an hour with this high-powered lawyer 
She went over all of my information. She interrogated me fairly fiercely. And when she was finished, she said, Mr. Field, I believe you've got a very sound claim. But the banks, sorry, the courts in Australia are not ready for this mm. yet. At some time in the future, yep. your claim will be heard and, and the judges will no longer be of a mind to protect the banks. They'll actually listen to what you're saying and you'll actually get some... We, we see we see things like this all throughout history. I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about the the the, valid, the validity of your your claim or anything like that. But throughout history, we see the status quo being challenged by somebody, and there has to be there has to be a fall guy at some point. And you you're Thank one you. you're, you're one of these fall guys. No, I was watching one of my kids' uh, DVDs about Rome and the Colosseum, and you know how the Colosseum they had. You know all the wild wild animals and um, and the gladiators and and uh, you know and animals in that part of the world the lions and the bears virtually became extinct because of the thousands that they were killing in these in these coliseums and then eventually there became a man and I I wish I could remember his name I've forgotten his name now who jumped in at one point and tried to stop the slaughter stop the the gladiators and the the animals and uh, and the people the people stoned him to death. But it was that catalyst that then brought the end, that started to, was the beginning of the end of the bloodlust that was the, the Colosseums in, in Rome. Yeah. And, and we see that again with people like Wilberforce, you know, the huge toll that it took on him for removing, removing slavery. And, you know, and so these, these changes of the inherent bias or inherent way the system works, the status quo, which suits a particular a dominant force in society. It takes it takes somebody. Unfortunately, it does tend to take a, a fall guy before this, or a number of fall guys before there is some change that, that that comes about. So, so this was this was some years ago, but not that long for you. It's seven or eight seven or eight years, and there's it, still a fight that's ongoing. Oh, absolutely. The, we've been told by some, including this high-powered lawyer that I mentioned, that we need to come up with about twenty to thirty thousand dollars to organise a, a Queen's Council, uh, a silk, to review yep. all of our uh, legal documentation and to re review our case and then to give them the nod. We already have litigation funders who are happy to fund the case for us and take a portion of the, 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 the money that we would win in winning the case. So uh, we can advance that as soon as we had that sort of money sitting in our pocket to be able to play with. But I've also felt that when the time is right, God will tap me on the shoulder and say, it's time to move on that. When we went through this whole process, one of my sons came to me and said, Dad, we believe that you're right. We believe that what you're doing is, is the right thing to do. But many other people have had issues that they've campaigned on and it's destroyed them or their family or their marriage or their health uh, or their sanity uh, in the process. Mm. And uh, my son was just concerned saying, Dad, Whatever you do, you don't dig your teeth into the rags so deeply that you get your head ripped off uh, just trying to fight this thing. Yeah. And I took that as a wise counsel, and I, I've made up my mind that I'm about serving God, glorifying Him, enjoying the life He's given me, blessing my family, uh, seeing other people get blessed, and that this thing sits on the sidelines until and unless God says, hey, give it some attention. And people often stop me, oh, how are you going with the court case? And I have to stop, oh, oh the court case, oh, yeah, of oh, that. <laughs> because I just put it out of You don't of want it to dominate your life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in its place. Yeah. And we believe that we'll have our home returned to us. 
that we'll have very, very sufficient um, compensation paid to us because of what's happened, and other people will be set free because of what we forced the system to have to address, along with other people's doing their part as well. So it must have been an incredible trauma for for you, and particularly your wife, I guess, for you know to go through that, to lose lose your home. Well, how much time do we have? Because well, uh, you want to just well, we'll, keep... we'll close we'll close this off. So I just want to touch on this though okay. that um, you know that must have the pers- the personal aspect, I guess, of that that must have taken a toll on your marriage and on your family. What sort of toll did did that sort of take, or did you sort of all? Did you find it was a unifying thing, that you're binding you together? And I think I'd have to say that, it's, that it, there have been both good and bad uh, effects from the process. Yep. I think that we have gone through the process with a remarkable sense of unity of thought and purpose and I think unity of abhorrence. Uh, that we would be made victims of the system in the way that we were, that justice was so hard for us to get our hands on, that things that we were told were rightfully ours as kids, we, we, we couldn't claw them out of somebody's hand with a crowbar. Yep. I think So there was a sense of unity being brought together in that struggle. Uh, and, of course, as we had to go and find a place to stay, as we went through the different things, um, there were upheavals, um, our life was disrupted, our children lost uh, access to their pets and, and that they lost their the, the normality of their life, our younger ones in particular. Um, so yes, there was a, a, a real upheaval and there was also that uh, sense of we're going to push through together, uh, we're in the fight together. Looking back now um, over the past seven years or so, I think I would say that uh, the underlying stress level that we kind of lived with and coped with feeling that we were doing it quite well is probably having a a wearing down effect in the longer term. Mm. Uh, In the short term, there are certain exhilarations about it, certain uh, sense of conviction and calling and destiny and so on about what we're doing. So the sense of of destiny and uh, and calling about what we're doing. But in the long term, uh, we uh, have been without a normal home until just this very last week we were able to move into uh, a home that is a home. We've been living in, in temporary living conditions for a very long time. Mm. Uh, and uh, my son had a lovely uh, dog, pet dog, that's been minded by other people through all that period of time. And finally the dog died only just earlier this year. And my son missed half of the life of that dog, uh, which was his dog, um, just because uh, of, of the difficulty of our circumstances. Mm. Uh, there are churches that will not invite me back to preach in them because they see me as either crazy or as representing uh, some kind of spiritual value that's not consistent with theirs or something. Yeah. Uh, so there's been a, a number of deleterious effects that have just settled on us and sat there over the longer term. And I can understand how people talk about, you know, uh, what they call stressors, that if you've been through um, a loss of job or loss of your finances or loss of a loved one, yep. um, these different tragedies and events, they all have a certain uh, point score in terms of stress value and that uh, enough of them can put someone over the edge. Well, looking at my situation now reflectively back over that period of time, I think, goodness, yes, there really is a, a, a toll that's taken at, at a subliminal level where you just look back and you realize, hey, um, I don't walk with the same skip in my step. I don't walk with the same energy and enthusiasm. Uh, certain elements of our life 
we are um, a little less resilient, maybe a little less tolerant, maybe a little less uh, positive about things. I, I am by nature uh, an optimist, uh, idealist optimist, probably the worst kind. Uh, so I'm always anticipating the very best outcomes. And when you have uh, adverse outcomes and they stick and they, they stick around for a very, very long time, uh, for someone with my personality, that's, that's very wearing. Um, Susan has been wonderful. My wife, Susan, um, has coped with this thing remarkably well. Um, but I can see uh, between us that uh, we're both tired in ways that we probably shouldn't be. We're both uh, worn, maybe frayed around the edges in ways that we shouldn't be. Mm. And I'm looking forward to the day when we can um, have notched up a couple of, of winds and begun to see the, the tide turn. Yep. We're seeing the tide turn legally on the global scale. We're seeing the tide turn for other people that are coming into the situation fresh. Uh, but for people like us who are in early and have kind of been kicked in the head, getting the system to be prepared to, to bring redress. You get that whole weight of that upon you. Yeah, yeah. but even the system, we're going to be some of the last ones maybe to be readily attended to because uh, it's easy to pick up a new case and process it by new new, new uh, insights yep. to, to do the old way around. But uh, overall, I think we'd have to say that it's been a very enriching spiritual experience. It's certainly done enormous things for our prayer life, the expressions of our faith, our casting our cares on the Lord, um, trying to be what he wants us to be, the way he wants us to be it. And um, if I had to do it all over again, there's no no hesitation in my mind. I, I would go back down really? the road again. Wow. Okay, well, that's been, uh, that's been a, a different topic to what we uh, what we normally talk about, and it's a still ongoing one, so we're going to have to pick this up again, and we'll be excited to hear about how this all unfolds. Um, and, uh, and we do need to pick up on that aspect of stress and these things which, which cause us stress in our lives because it might be a, a situation like this, but it might be a loss of a loved one or a sickness in the family or a loss of a job. And these are things which um, affect us more ways than what we generally give them credit for. So we need to pick that up on a, a later topic. But for now, thanks so much, Chris, for sharing. Well, that's my privilege, and I hope it's been a blessing to those that have heard us today. Okay, so if you've had a similar experience, maybe you've had a David and Goliath battle that uh, that you've been, been fighting or have fought in the past, let us know about it. We'd love to hear your story and how it's affected you. So... Leave a comment, get in touch with us at the website www.realmen247.org or on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, goodbye. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Real Talk for Real Men podcast at www.realmen247.org.